everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring common questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm Sandra Brown, Regional Genetics Program Manager for Providence Southern California. Joining me today is Danielle Williams. We are both board-certified, licensed genetic counselors, and this is the second of our four-part series about our genetics and genomics programs at Providence Orange County, including Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo, St. Joseph Hospital in Orange, and St. Jude Medical Center in Fullerton. Today, we want to discuss our unique and innovative genetics programs. So let's get started. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Sandy. It's really great to speak with you today about really what are truly leading edge programs that we have. Yes, thanks for having me today. I'm excited to talk about our exciting programs. <laughs> thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your work with Providence, and, and your role in leading some of our programs? Sure. So I am a cancer genetic counselor at Providence for a little over four years now. Um, I have been fortunate enough to be involved in several different projects throughout my time here, but currently my main project is serving as regional lead in Orange County for our care program, which we'll talk more about today. Um, I trained at the University of Texas Genetic Counseling Program and have worked here ever since. So I was drawn to St. Joseph because of their incredibly strong and advanced genetics program. Thank you. Yes, and we're lucky to have you part of our team. Oh, thank you. In our first podcast, we did talk about the basics of, you know, who is a genetic counselor. Um, but can you give us an overview of what the genetic counselors do to support our patient care at Providence? Sure. Genetic counselors are a very important part of the healthcare team because we help facilitate the genetic testing process while also providing support to our patients. So one of our major strengths as genetic counselors is simplifying complex information so that it can be more easily understood by patients. Because most patients are not medical providers, but they still deserve to understand their care and be able to have that information so that they can better advocate for themselves and their needs. So in cancer genetics specifically, our main goal is to integrate someone's genetic testing results with their family history to create a personalized cancer prevention and screening plan so that we can make sure we're taking care of them in the best way that we can. Yeah, and I think one of the most important things about um, the way that genetic counselors are part of the um, care team at Providence is that we not only see patients, and so we have patients in our offices, we are providing consultations and genetic testing, but we also sit at every single case conference, every tumor board where a patient's case is being discussed so that we can make sure that we're reviewing the pathology, the family history, um, any molecular evidence for that case, and that we are providing the genetic expert opinion in those um, conferences. And that we also have several programs that we run. We run our pathology screening program, which Dylan is going to talk about at our next podcast. We also um, run our walk-in clinic. So we have several genetic assistants, and that allows us to have same-day services where patients can just walk in and arrive to receive uh, kind of barrier-free, appointment-less genetic services, which is also a unique aspect of the way that we um, have our genetic counselors 
uh, kind of serving at the top of what their scope is of practice. Um, and then also our genetic counselors actually provide a lot of education for our physicians and patient care teams. Um, so we're really integrated, not only um, in the direct delivery of patient care, but also overall in the patient's treatment and care team. Right. We're involved so much more than what would seem just on the surface level. Yeah. And traditionally, when you think about the traditional uh, models of delivering uh, genetic counseling and genetic services, um, they were much different. Um, and they were really based on the uh, previous um, situation where patients would really have to have very significant personal and family histories to meet any kind of criteria to have genetic services. But it's not really that way anymore. Can you talk a little bit more about what, you know, what is a traditional model of um, having genetic counseling and being a genetic counselor, especially in providing cancer care? Sure. So traditionally, people would be referred to genetics by their doctor and schedule usually an hour-long appointment with a genetic counselor. And then during that appointment, the genetic counselor would ask questions about their personal and family history to create a very detailed family tree. And then using that information, they would determine what level of concern they have for a particular genetic condition and what the recommended next steps would be. So they would explain um, the condition that they're concerned about, the different testing options for the patient, possible results, and explain any questions that the patient might have throughout this process. If the patient decided to do testing, um, they could provide a sample for genetic testing on the same day, usually either a blood or saliva sample. And then two to three weeks later, the genetic counselor would call them with their results um, and review the personalized screening plan for the patient based off of their family history and their genetic testing results. Yeah, I think that was an important area to look at, you know, how genetic counselors were established in patient care and that we really identified high risk patients and then saw those patients one at a time um, in a scheduled appointment. And unfortunately, as the, um, or I should say, you know, fortunately, the criteria grew. So we started to realize that more and more and more patients actually met criteria or should meet criteria for considering genetic testing. Um, and then, unfortunately, it ended up that with so many patients meeting criteria for genetic counseling, that we were scheduling patients sometimes six, nine months out. And then we would have urgent um, uh, places in our calendars where we could see patients more readily. But it just really wasn't enough um, to modify the traditional methods to fit the current need. So can you talk about more about how our unique programs don't follow traditional models and, and why and why that's a benefit? Yeah, so there's a few different reasons that we started looking for creative solutions um, compared to the traditional model. So one reason is, as you mentioned, um, because our wait times were getting really extensive, we just didn't have enough genetic counselors to see all the patients that needed to be seen. And especially for patients that are undergoing treatment, that genetic testing can be really critical and time-sensitive information. So any delay in getting that testing can be really detrimental to their care. And we also found that the traditional genetic counseling appointment 
has the potential to create some barriers for particular patients, whether that's financially or logistically. Especially patients with cancer tend to have a lot of other appointments to coordinate. Oftentimes they're not feeling well from their treatments or chemotherapies. So adding another appointment can often be a big challenge for them. So because we kept running into those barriers, we launched our same-day service clinics um, where patients can come in whenever it's most convenient for them, even if they're in the building for another appointment, and they can come do testing without having that appointment in place beforehand. So we have two different same-day service clinics that we'll talk about, um, but in both of these models, patients meet with one of our wonderful genetics assistants for an abbreviated session that still includes um, obtaining their family tree. And then instead of meeting with a genetic counselor, they watch a video about genetic testing, which covers a lot of the same main topics that a genetic counselor would have discussed with them. And then they're able to provide their sample for genetic testing. And in both options, there is always a genetic counselor behind the scene um, to disclose their results and just oversee their case. I think those are really important areas to talk about why we would, um, you know, deviate from a traditional model and the need for it and actually um, how it may benefit um, our patients. I think one of the things that started happening in about 2015 and then 2018 and, and continues to happen today is that um, certain patients uh, with certain types of cancer are now um, all included in the recommendation to have genetic counseling and genetic testing. And so it started off with all patients with ovarian cancer meet criteria for um, genetic testing, and then all patients with pancreatic cancer, and then um, all patients with aggressive prostate cancer. And now really looking at all patients with breast cancer is looks like it's gonna be the next um, modification in our standard criteria. And then also right behind that looks like all patients with colorectal cancer. And then there are other rare cancers where it would be all the patients with this kind of cancer. And so when you start looking at really wanting to serve everyone, um, everyone really doesn't benefit from having the one hour appointment where you talk with a genetic counselor about, you know, all of the different aspects of doing genetic testing. Many of these patients have no family history at all, but they still need the genetic testing, like you said, in order to make sure that all of their treatment considerations are in place in a timely manner when they're discussing all their treatment options with their uh, medical oncologists and surgeons. And so we knew that we could not continue to delay the patient care and that there was less need to actually sit with a genetic counselor for a full hour before having genetic testing. And since there was less need to do that, that really allowed us to look at modifying um, how we um, you know, are able to provide ease of access um, and to limit the pressure on um, the patient to have to schedule an appointment um, and then to try to meet that appointment when they do have a lot of other obstacles, you know, they could be undergoing chemotherapy and feeling very sick. They could, you know, tr be trying to juggle work while they're trying to have their cancer care. Um, and so being able to really ease their way um, and offer genetic testing in a way that is so accessible and so timely, it was something that we really needed to do. Right. And with the traditional model, before the patient has had testing, we're mostly talking in hypotheticals about what the results could possibly mean and 
where we go with each one of those results, whereas now we can meet with them after they've had testing. And so we're talking with more concrete information because we know what the results are. And so then we can go down the next steps with the patient um, and cut out some of that hypothetical. So I think it also makes it a lot more concrete for the patient um, mm -hmm. and really maximizes the time that they have with a genetic counselor. Yeah, it's a lot more meaningful. Mm -hmm. and, and I think one of the things that you pointed out is that all of our patients that are coming through our walk-in clinics and having same-day services, um, whether they're identified through the care program or identified through our pathology screening program, all of these patients, all of their care is being overseen by a genetic counselor. So there's always a genetic counselor looking at their case and making sure that they're getting the right test and that they're, they're getting the right insurance coverage and that they're getting the right interpretation of their genetic test results in the end. Um, and so a, a patient could have no family history and a negative genetic test result, and they really wouldn't have to talk to us for very long because we would just say, it looks like this is not inherited. Right. So that really only takes about five minutes of our time. And then it allows the patient to really focus on their care. Um, and it also is relieving to them because we can talk to them more about what that risk is to their family members. You know, how having a family member with a cancer without a mutation, without any additional family history, really how we would interpret that risk to other relatives. Whereas, you know, there's all kinds of different results and different family histories that may be more meaningful to a patient. And for each patient, we can then personalize the amount of time that they would need to spend with a genetic counselor to really meet their needs and allow them to focus where their primary focus needs to be. Right. I think that's one of the most important things of these programs is that even if they're not meeting with a genetic counselor up front, there is still that genetic counselor behind the scenes, making sure that that's the best option for that patient. And then, like you said, we can still flag which patients might benefit more from an extended um, consultation with a genetic counselor. Exactly. And I know we've both been mentioning that we have a couple of same-day clinics. So we have different types of appointment-list, same-day arrivals, same-day services. Can you just, um, just you know, real quickly um, summarize what the difference is between them? Sure. So at its core, um, we have those two programs. One is called our walk-in clinic. Um, this clinic is designed for patients that have an active cancer diagnosis and are undergoing treatment. So they are often referred to us by one of their treating doctors. The other clinic is called our care clinic, which is primarily designed for patients without an active cancer diagnosis. And these patients at this time are mainly seen in our mammogram clinic. So they're getting their just annual mammogram screenings with one of our partner clinics. And then they are flagged for genetic testing and they come down and provide a sample if they're interested in doing so. Great. And let's focus on the care program because it's the program that you lead for all of our locations. And it's also a pretty unique program. Um, it's something that, like you said, it's for patients that don't have cancer. They're just going about their lives, having their standard screening, going in for their mammogram. And this is a, an area where we can actually make sure that those patients understand whether or not they have an increased risk of developing cancer. 
Exactly. So these patients are just undergoing their usual mammogram appointment like they do every year. And before that appointment, they are sent a questionnaire that asks them questions about their personal and family history. So just like whenever you go into a doctor's office and you're filling out those paper forms before your appointment, it's like that except we do an electronic version so that patients can complete it before their appointment. Um, and there are two different ways that we use the answers to this questionnaire. So the first is to determine whether that person meets genetic testing criteria for hereditary cancer based off their family history. So if they tell us that they have a significant family history of cancer, that will flag them as meeting that criteria. So then when they have their mammogram, their tech knows to provide them with additional information about genetics and give them our contact information so that they can just walk down to our clinic after their mammogram appointment. Um, the questionnaire also uses those responses to calculate someone's lifetime risk of breast cancer because that number is put onto their mammogram report and is important in making sure that someone's getting the best breast screenings for them. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about the um, questionnaire. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how this is an advanced um, technology to be able to send the patient an electronic questionnaire before their mammogram appointment? Yeah, so because they can complete this ahead of time, um, that does help streamline their appointment, both from um, the caretaker's point of view and from the patient's point of view. But this questionnaire also uses AI technology, um, which helps us flag their answers without using a manual process. Um, so that way we're able to make genetics more accessible to people who might have otherwise slipped through the cracks because we're able to screen these large volumes of patients using this AI technology. Yeah, I mean, so far we've screened over 100,000 patients this way. And I think it's really interesting because AI is in the news a lot. When you think about an AI technology uh, where we're using a chatbot to send out the patient um, just an, a request to fill out our questionnaire electronically, it either goes to their cell phone or it goes to their email, and then they just have to answer a few questions. But what's brilliant about it, and I think what may go unnoticed by our patients, which is fine, is that it really allows us to personalize their care. Um, we're, even though we're sending them an electronic questionnaire, it's not because we're trying to treat them like a number. It's because we're trying to treat them like an individual. Um, because though that chatbot response that they, um, that they provide about their personal and family history allows that AI technology to automatically calculate um, their lifetime risk of developing breast cancer like you mentioned. So their lifetime risk of developing breast cancer is something that's known before they even arrive. So it's known by the radiologist, it's known by the breast health team. And so this patient then can get additional recommendations um, if we identify them as having a elevated risk of developing breast cancer, then they can do additional screening. Um, typically, we would recommend um, a interval, meaning like a, at six months in between your, your standard mammograms having a breast MRI. Um, and then also the AI technology is able to screen um, the um, basic uh, national guidelines for doing genetic testing screen all those guidelines and determine whether or not the patient meets those criteria and then informs us that the patient met those criteria. And then it's also able to provide education. So it provides videos, education about 
what the genetic testing recommendation is and, and you know, what, what they can do. Um, and it also allows us to have the patients arrive and know them already. So when they arrive to the walk-in clinic um, for the care program, we already know them. We already know what their responses to the questions are. And we're already, we're ready then to, to take care of them and collect their sample. So it's a great program and I really appreciate your leadership in it. Thank you. And I think it's very unique that we're able to connect with that mammogram clinic because a lot of times you go to the doctor's office and you're answering over and over the same questions. So I think it's really helpful to our patients that both of those answers go to two different clinics so that we can save time um, and save them from repeating the same questions. So you mentioned, um, you know, the lifetime. We've been talking about this technology and how it uh, calculates the lifetime risk of breast cancer. Can you go into a little bit more detail about what is that? How is it calculated and what kind of information does it provide? Sure. So one of the main um, models that we use to calculate someone's lifetime risk of breast cancer is called Tyracusic. Um, this model takes into account a lot of different personal factors like when someone had their first child. It also takes into account their family history and things like breast density. So the average woman's lifetime risk to develop breast cancer um, is around 12 to 13 percent, but obviously this number will change for each woman depending on all of these different factors. So if someone's risk is estimated to be over 20%, they're actually considered to be in a high risk category. So we want to take care of them differently than we would the average person. So women that have over a 20% lifetime risk to develop breast cancer, like you said, we recommend those annual breast MRIs in addition to doing their yearly mammogram because we know that they're in a higher risk category. So we want to be able to keep a closer eye on them. Yeah, it's great. And when you think about this program, um, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about is the need for a referral. Um, so when the patients come through our care program, um, they typically don't need a referral. Um, and the reason for that is, is that the referral is embedded in their uh, physician's referral to the mammography. So just getting that mammogram referral, anything else that's identified um, that the patient needs is included in that referral. So we don't need to obtain an additional referral, which really it also eases the access um, for those patients to participate in the care program. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about really is a lot about how does technology um, facilitate and provide additional access and ease of access to our patients. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about regarding the technology, especially in this program? One thing with this technology is we can also see which patients have already done genetic testing in the past and figure out if they need updated genetic testing. Because in the genetics world, our technology and our knowledge improves very, very quickly. So over time, um, we discover other technology to look at the genes and we discover additional genes that we can now test for. So, for example, if someone had hereditary cancer testing in 2012, their testing probably only included two different genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Now it's 2023 and we 
routinely test for around 80 to 90 um, different genes in the hereditary cancer space. So even though a person's genetic information doesn't change since we're looking at the genes that someone was born with, our technology can significantly change. So with the CARE program, we're also able to check in on those patients that have already had testing and see if it's time for them to come back in and consider more testing or if their testing is still considered current and they don't need to do any additional testing at this point. Yeah, that's great. I think this is a great service. And one of the things that we're excited about is being able to expand our care program, um, not only um, in mammography, which is a great area to capture a large, you know, it's a basically a well population, a healthy population. It's important to us to identify high risk individuals within the healthy population so that we can work on risk reduction and prevention um, and, you know, uh, education, um, about how to uh, manage risk for patients before they get cancer so that in our hopes is that any cancer that occurs would be either early, um, you know, detected early at an early stage or completely prevented. Um, so this is a really important area for us to really be serving our community when you realize that this is a, a large population that we are screening in order to identify those that need additional risk management, risk reduction, and prevention, preventive strategies. Uh, so another area um, that we're looking at is expanding it to uh, endoscopy so that as individuals go in for their colonoscopies, that we can be providing the same kind of questionnaire and outreach and uh, high-risk identification. One of the things that's difficult is that the mammography population is all um, the basically uh, the female population. So your women getting their annual mammograms and we're still struggling to make sure that we can reach out to the men in our communities. Right. It's really exciting um, that we're working on expanding that because we do want to reach as many patients um, as possible and really make this service accessible because we're finding more and more populations that can really benefit from genetic testing. And it's really powerful information that can help prevent cancers altogether. Um, so mm -hmm. being able to test that well population um, is really exciting because hopefully we can start to prevent more and more cancers over time. Yeah, it's really my dream to move it into endoscopy. We're already starting that. So we should have endoscopy live by the end of this year. And also a, a big idea to move it into um, prostate screening so that um, especially men that have a high risk of developing prostate cancer can be identified. And so some of these high risk um, genes or uh, family history for developing prostate cancer lead to early onset and aggressive prostate cancers. So just really important to identify individuals that have that risk as well. Right. And I think it's really unique that we're able to integrate this with the screening clinics because people that are going to screening clinics are going to those clinics because they're concerned about their cancer risk and they're getting their usual screenings. So it's a perfect time to give them more information about what their risk actually might be and just connect those two pieces together. Right. They're doing great self-care. And, but it may not be enough self-care, right? So we can identify and advise patients, I'm so glad you're doing your screening. But for you, 
standard screening is not enough. Now I'm going to, uh, you know, give you a recommendation to do this additional screening so that you can achieve um, cancer prevention and risk reduction. I think you're right. It's a very powerful moment um, that patients who are already wanting to come in and do their um, standard screening get the information they really need to do the right screening. Exactly. So um, when you're talking to patients, and especially patients that are coming through the care program or patients that you're seeing, um, what kind of questions or common questions about their genetic testing and their results are you seeing? Yeah, there's a lot of common questions that we get and a lot of common misconceptions. Um, a lot of patients ask if this testing can detect an active cancer. Um, there are other tests looking at that, but this testing, genetic testing, does not detect active cancer. It helps us estimate what someone's risk to develop cancer in the future would be. Um, so we're looking at the genetics that we were born with that don't change throughout our life. So we're just getting more information about someone's risk. In our future podcast, um, I think it's with Dylan in number three. Um, so that will be the next one. Um, and we're going to go over more about what is germline. So when you refer to the genetics that you're born with, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about germline genetic testing. Exactly. Um, I also get questions about which people will or will not develop cancer. Unfortunately, we don't have a crystal ball, so we can't figure out exactly who's going to develop cancer. It just helps us get a more accurate estimate so that we know is someone's risk closer to the average population or are they high risk and need to be watched more closely. So there are a few exceptions, but most of the genes that we test for don't have a 100% risk for cancer. So even if someone has a mutation in one of these genes, it does not mean that they definitely 100% will develop cancer. It's just giving us more information about what their risk actually is. Right. And then we can compare it to the general population risk so that they can see and understand how much higher their risk of developing a certain cancer may be from the general population. And that helps them to make a decision about what to do, you know, what kind of decisions they would like to make to more individualize their risk reduction strategies. And it just gives, it puts it in a frame of context. Sometimes patients who have a lot of family history of cancer, they may feel coming in that their risk of developing cancer is 100%. So it's really, it, it helps really put this in context when you say, I found a gene, I found a mutation that increases your risk for cancer, and I can tell you that risk is 80% or 50% or 30% as compared to the general population risk, uh, whatever that is. And so I think it really helps patients to frame what their risks really are, and it, I think it alleviates a lot of fear around that as well. Um, I think that's just an interesting aspect about it too, because a lot of times it's not because um, patients have a higher risk of developing cancer, which they often do when we identify a mutation, but they also need to start their screening at a younger age. So that if we don't do the genetic testing and we don't realize what's the cause of their family history, then we won't be able to advise them on when, what age to start their screening. Exactly. And that's one of my favorite things is when you see a really strong family history in those 
previous generations, but then you identify the mutation that's causing that cancer. And so then the mutate or then the generations moving forward, you're not seeing those cancers because those people are getting the screenings that they need. And so we're able to prevent those cancers and actually eliminate a lot of cancer history that there would have been in the family if we didn't find that mutation. Yeah, that is really powerful when you see whole generations of people in an affected uh, family that the new generations that have this information are able to avoid that cancer, are able to prevent that cancer because they're empowered with this information. Right. Especially those cancers that are more difficult to screen for and difficult to catch at earlier stages, like ovarian cancer, um, can be a really tough cancer that people see in their families. But then if we know about it, we can have those women that are at higher risk remove their ovaries and reduce that risk almost to zero. Yeah, that's amazing, right? Yeah. Um, what other kinds of questions do you hear from patients? Um, I also get a lot of questions about whether men in the family need genetic testing, because there's a misconception that only women need genetic testing, especially for female-considered cancers, um, things like breast or ovarian cancer. But a lot of the mutations in those genes that are increasing the risk of breast and ovarian cancer have another pattern that increases risk for other cancer types like prostate or colon cancer, which could also be applicable for the men. So it's equally important for men and women um, to get genetic testing so that we have that information. Yes, definitely. I actually had a, a physician one time call me because he wanted to understand why the father's side of the family um, cancer history had any impact at all on his female patient when she did um, end up testing positive and carried a mutation associated with female cancer risk when on her dad's side of the family it was only male cancers that we were seeing but the male cancer pattern in the family met that criteria that would make us concerned that the females in the in the family would actually have um, risks more associated with female organs like breasts and ovaries. Right. So for identifying that link, that can be helpful for men and women because it's pretty rare for a genetic mutation to increase the risk for only one cancer type. Most of the genes that we're looking at increase the risk for multiple cancer types, which can apply to men and women. Yes, definitely. Uh, any other questions that you're thinking are common for your patients? Um, along the same lines, we also get um, some questions about prostate cancer genes coming from dad's side of the family, breast cancer genes coming from mom's side of the family, or that you inherit certain things from one side of the family versus the other. Um, but for the most part, our genes are inherited equally from our parents. So the only exception is the X and Y chromosomes, which is relatively a very small amount of genetic information compared to the rest of our chromosomes. So um, that's why when we take a family history, we want to see mom's side and dad's side because they're both important. Sure. Yeah, I think that's um, I think that's really interesting because um, sometimes people don't realize that um, both sides of the family are important to their cancer risk. 
I've had patients say to me, well, I really look like and I take after my mom's side and there's no cancer on their side. So I figured my dad's side didn't matter or vice versa, thinking that their maybe their physical appearance or their attributes um, they identified more like inheriting from one side of the family. And so then they just assumed that other risks and other attributes would not play a role in their um, in their risk and in their medical care. Um, and then just to remember that half of our DNA comes from mom's side, half of our DNA comes from dad's side. And so even if you take after one side of the family, you're still got to be concerned about any of the medical history on the other side of the family. Right. And important to remember that those traits aren't linked. So you might have curly hair like your cousin, but that doesn't mean that you have the same mutation that she does. Um, so that's why we need to do the testing regardless of which side you look like. So speaking about families and how families are integral in our ability to interpret um, a patient's test result, as well as their risk and be able to really provide them more accurate information can you talk about our cascade testing program? Really, what is cascade testing? And, um, you know, why does genetics move from um, just serving one individual patient um, personally to also serving their family? Yeah. So cascade testing is one of the most important parts of genetic testing. So obviously the genetic testing information is important for that one person to make sure that we're taking care of them. But the other half of that information is to take care of their family members. So once we identify a mutation in a family, we would recommend testing for other family members that are at risk to have that same mutation because then we know who in the family needs to be watched more closely and follow those extra screenings and that more personalized plan versus who did not inherit that mutation and doesn't need to do those extra screenings, maybe they can continue with just average population screenings. So it's really important for us to decipher who in the family has that mutation and who doesn't. So one way that we do that is by testing one person at a time or one category of people at a time. So for example, if one person has a mutation, then we would want to test their child to see whether they inherited that mutation because there's a 50% chance that they did and a 50% chance that they did not. If their child also carries that mutation, then we would go on to test their, the original person's grandchildren because we know they would be at risk for the mutation. But if that original patient's child does not have the mutation, they don't have that increased cancer risk, but they also can't pass on that mutation because you can't pass on a mutation that you don't have. So then we wouldn't need to go on to test the grandchildren. So we do it kind of stepwise um, so that we can be more efficient and more thoughtful about which people need to be tested next. Yeah, I mean, in this way, we're able to really provide um, service and support to an entire family. We're able to see what cancers may have been attributed to a identified mutation in the family. Um, maybe there's more than one mutation in the family. That happens. We find that relatively frequently, even though it seems like it would be very rare. Um, and we can see um, what who in the family did not inherit a mutation, and therefore we don't have to be concerned about their offspring. And we can really start working with a whole family to help them understand what this is, 
um, what kind of a gene it is, what what is its role, and what are the cancer risks, and then allow that family to go through a process of figuring out who's at risk, what they have risk for, and um, what cancers in the family are attributed to that risk and what may be attributed to something else. Um, so I think it's just really important that it's it's an aspect of our uh, care delivery that we consider not just the patient in individualizing their care, but recognizing that their results and their history and their family history um, really are something that um, are, are extremely important to the overall wellness of their entire family. Right. It's kind of like a puzzle of what's going on in the family, and we're just trying to get all of the pieces that we can to get a comprehensive idea of what's going on in the family and ultimately figure out how we need to take care of each person in that family. Sure. Well, it's great talking to you, Danielle. I want to just uh, leave. We only have a few more minutes left, and I wanted to just see if what excites you about the future of being a genetic counselor and providing um, genetic medicine, genetic services to our community? So much. <laughs> Genetics is really exciting because it changes so quickly. And like we talked about, our technology has changed so much just in the past 10 years. So we expect that that is likely going to continue. So I'm sure we'll continue discovering other genes um, and other technologies. Um, one of those technologies that you may have heard of is uh, polygenic risk scores, which is looking at smaller genetic changes rather than the genetic the bigger genetic changes that we've been talking about. Um, so looking at smaller pieces and seeing how that's playing into someone's risk. And so that way we can take into account lots of different factors besides just those high risk genes. And similarly, we're also learning to figure out how particular mutations within each gene change the risk as well. Because right now, we kind of group most mutations based off the gene that they're in. But we can have thousands of mutations within the same gene, and we're still learning what the impact of each of those different mutations is on someone's risk. So maybe in the future, we would take more into account what the specific mutation is within that gene and treat them slightly differently rather than grouping them into one gene as a whole. Right. And well, I agree with you. Being um, part of genetics and, you know, having our focus on the delivery of uh, genetic medicine is really an exciting area. There's so much um, every year that we have to continue to keep up, keep pace with to um, be able to incorporate in our patient care so that we're always at the leading edge of delivering patient care to our patients. And then we're always excited because we can see right beyond that door of what's coming next. We know that smaller changes in genes may group together. Um, we know that there's more genes to be uh, discovered in the future. And we know that gene to gene interaction uh, may also modify risk. And those are things we don't do yet. And then, like you said, every small variation that is a mutation within a gene does not necessarily cause the exact same levels of risk. And being able to really decipher more and more and be able to give additional accuracy to our patients in helping them um, to avoid risk and to prevent, especially to prevent cancer, 
it's an exciting field to be in. And I really appreciate your excellence. And you're an amazing colleague and your dedication to our care program and to delivering genetic uh, services to our patients is uh, really just truly amazing and appreciated. Thank you. I feel very fortunate to have you as a colleague as well and be able to work at a hospital that is on the cutting edge for all of these genetic technologies. So thanks everyone uh, for joining us today on Talk with a Doc. Please listen to all four of our genetics podcasts in this series. We look forward to continuing the important conversations on health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes as well. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, go to providence.org. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.